If you are between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. If you like to act like you're between the ages of four to second grade, I'm sure they'd love your help. So you can talk to Austin Shower about that. We are walking through a series called The Table. What does it look like to fellowship with Jesus? And as Jesus in John 13 through 17 calls his disciples together in the upper room so that they can meet. He spends probably three, three and a half hours with them and some final teaching before he prays with them, walks across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane to which he'll be arrested and later crucified. So he spends his time with his disciples preparing them, pouring into them, loving them, and establishing them for what they're going to do next. And in discipling his disciples, so doing, he is discipling us as well. And so we're taking our time to walk through this text so that we might sit at the feet of Jesus and be discipled alongside his disciples so that we could know him better, serve him better, and have a greater understanding of our purpose as well. Well, we walked through the major teaching section. In fact, last week we walked into chapter 17, noting that Jesus starts to pray. It's interesting, as we opened this prayer in John 17, 1, we noted that Jesus used prayer to connect with his Father. It's certainly a means of connection, of abiding, if you will. But he also used it as a means of discipleship. He prayed out loud. He prayed so his disciples would hear him. It's recorded. So it's a model for us. And as we walk through those early six verses, Jesus prays for one thing. He prays that this. He says, glorify your son, that the son might glorify you, the father. In effect, Jesus only prays one thing for himself heading to the cross. He asks his father more or less to make much of him. To put a big spotlight on him for one purpose, so that he might make much of the Father. It says one thing, allow me to make a bigger deal of you. And if you boil that down, if you walk through that in the scriptures, you find that Jesus going to the cross basically says, God, do anything you want to me. I will subject myself to anything for your glory. And what a fitting model of discipleship that would be for these guys, all of whom would die. Ten of the eleven, crucified. And of course, we've commented to John many times, John boiled in a pot of oil, considered crucified, though he didn't die, and they send him to an island to die in exile. And we get these letters from John. Jesus had one thought in mind giving himself up that the Father might be glorified. And as he transitions out of that, he walks into a second section of prayer. Uh, This whole prayer might take, as we have it recorded, 90 seconds or so to pray out loud. And he walks into this next section, John 17, 6 through 19, and begins to pray for his disciples. And let me read it to you this morning. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. 
and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you, give, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and, I've not, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. These are the words that Jesus prayed for his disciples. He starts in John 17, 6 by saying, I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. And that's literally what Jesus did. He incarnated himself. He manifested himself into the world. We talked about that a couple weeks ago at the beginning of John, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came in flesh to manifest the Father, to reveal the Father, and to show the Father to the world. He says, gave me out of the world. Jesus is referring to us. He's talking about these disciples and ultimately talking about you. He's manifested your name to the people you gave me. An interesting thing to recognize, to realize as we walk through the text is that you belong to God. He owns you. Your ownership is otherworldly. You have been set apart and he has a purpose for you as he did for these disciples. He says, yours they were and gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He acknowledges that about these disciples, that for three years they've kept your word. And exactly what does that look like? He describes in the next two verses when he says, Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you've sent me. What Jesus says is two things about these disciples. First, that they have come to know by walking with Jesus that it's all about the Father. They've come to know the preeminence of the Father, that everything has come from Him. And in verse 8, they recognize that even the words given to Jesus came from the Father. 
It's an interesting beginning to a prayer. It's an interesting beginning to an understanding for these guys. Because as Jesus is praying for these disciples, he acknowledges first that they know he came from the Father and that they know his words came from the Father. And, and friends, it would be pretty easy for some of us to stop there. To acknowledge that Jesus came from the Father, to acknowledge that his teaching came from the Father, and never allow it to penetrate our lives to any level that's deeper than that. But that's not what Jesus says about these disciples. It's not just about knowing who God is. It's not just about knowing that his word came from the Father. Jesus takes it a step further and says in verse 8, For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Literally, that they have taken them in, that they have made them theirs. That they didn't just hear the word of God, they owned the word of God. That it came into their hearts and they received it in its totality. Though clearly they don't understand it all, they received it. And they've come to know in truth. In truth, it's, it's this experiential idea it's not just that they think about it. It's that they really know in truth who Jesus is. You know, it's, it's a difference between knowing a celebrity and knowing somebody personally. And many people can get stuck in that little mixture where we know God like we might know a celebrity. We know some of the details about him. We could give some of the facts. We could give you some of the figures. We might be able to list a book he wrote or three or four or five, depending on how broad you want to take that. But we miss the opportunity to know him in this real personal way that, that Jesus is attributing to these disciples that throughout this meal he's tried to make really clear by washing their feet and clarifying for them where their cleansing comes from. He's made it really clear to them by passing a cup around to them to let them know that it was the blood of Jesus Christ that would be sufficient for them and nothing else. See, these guys, as Jesus is praying for them, believed. They believe that you have sent me. They've put their whole stock into Jesus Christ. And Jesus acknowledges that in prayer. In verse 9, Jesus says, and I am praying for them. What a sweet statement, by the way. Just to be sitting in the presence of Jesus and then to acknowledge before the Father, he's praying for you. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. All are mine and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And Jesus is praying for his disciples and he's wanting them to know about it. He's wanting them to know that he prays for them. And before we get more into the content of this, let's continue to make some observations. Because at this point, four verses in, Jesus hasn't petitioned the Father for anything. He hasn't put a single prayer request before God. But he's accomplished a couple of things. First, He's positionally put before his disciples the preeminence of the Father. And that's crucial. He, he puts before them the reality that God is sovereign, and it's God's will that he's following. And just as Jesus is sub 
subjected himself to the Father, so these same disciples, as they go forward, are going to have to live under the Father. So Jesus is modeling what this relationship looks like for them. But it has a sweet side to it, too. Because it's not just that they're subject to the Father, it's that they belong to the Father. And isn't it sweet to consider for these guys, most of whom are going to leave their families, most of whom are going to walk hundreds of miles into who knows where to tell people about Jesus, to know that they belong, to know that they're owned, to know that they're significant, to know that they have purpose and meaning because they belong to the Father, that he is their daddy. Jesus wants them to just soak in that. And to realize that. That's why he's praying over them these words. All are yours and yours are mine. He's praying over them. He wants them to realize how much they belong to the Father. And secondly, I want you to notice this. As he asks the Father to glorify the Son in verse 1. That was future tense. Glorify. It's, it's coming. As he's heading to the cross. And here he says something astounding. Jesus says, I am glorified in them, past tense. I'm glorified in them, past tense. So as Jesus has begun to pray for his disciples, he prays two things. Two things that we've at least got to grab onto that he's putting before his disciples that we've got to know. First, that they belong to the Father. And second, Jesus is acknowledging that he's already glorified in them. Now, before we go any further into what Jesus is going to pray for these guys, we got to know that. And as Jesus is praying for these guys, you got to know it's also true about you. That as we're going to walk through this, as Jesus is modeling prayer and discipling these guys, it's just as true for the 11 as it is for you. Jesus wants you to know That you belong. That you're owned by the Father. And that you're His. That if you wonder if you could connect, you could fit in somewhere, God says, yes, it's me. I own you. You belong to me. I want you. I pick you. I love you. And Jesus makes that so clear by his willingness to proceed directly to the cross with some passion, with some fervor, without any delays. You'll note as we continue to push through this text, there's no like, hey, let's go get dessert or maybe a cup of coffee would be great. See, Jesus pushes from here directly to the cross because he wants you so badly to get how much you're loved. And for that not to be something you just hear. And not something you accept that would come from the Father. But something you'd really believe. Something you'd really receive. Something that would soak into your heart all the way through the depths of it. And that you would see that God doesn't only love you in Jesus Christ. But you're also glorifying Jesus by submitting yourself to him. These guys haven't done much yet, have they? Yeah, Jesus has sent them out on some assignments. They've they've gone and they've come back. But Jesus wants them to know before, before it all really gets going, guys, 
Because you've glorified me. Past tense. I'm glorified by what you've been doing. You've made much of me. And he's really honored by that. And that's true about you if you've claimed the name of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is doing here is he's modeling something called intercessory prayer. So let's define that. This will by no means be the greatest message you'll ever hear, period, let alone the greatest message you'll ever hear about intercessory prayer. Let's just acknowledge what this is and then keep moving through the text because that's kind of our purpose. But Jesus is modeling what is called intercessory prayer. What that basically means is to intercede on somebody's behalf. When Jesus addresses the Father, he steps into the middle and says, I want to pray on behalf of these guys. I want to put some things in front of you about these guys. Joe Carter, who's a blogger and several, um, I don't even know what you call it, on the internet, blogs for several major Christian blogs, defines intercessory prayer this way. He says, intercession is the act of intervening on behalf of someone who is in difficulty or trouble, pleading or petitioning on their behalf. Intercessory prayer is merely the act of praying or interceding to God on behalf of someone other than yourself. And so as Jesus is modeling prayer for these guys, as he's discipling them in prayer, you got to appreciate that not only does he pray for himself, God make much of me that I might make much of you, now he's going to pray for some other people. And for some of us, that's got to get a little instructive. That prayer is not just about me, but Jesus models it in an intercessory way that we might be lifting one another up. See, that's actually the benefit of the church. There are countless number of times where we're called to be praying for one another, to be carrying one another, to intercede on behalf of one another. So that as we close this service and we walk away from here and you're having a cookie in the hallway talking to somebody and they share a hardship that they're walking through or something difficult going on in their life or maybe, just maybe, you happen to recognize today is Mother's Day and you know Mother's Day is not really easy for some folks. That's a chance for you to intercede on their behalf. To step into the realm of God and to say, Father, on behalf of my friend, I want to lift him up to you. I want to put him before you. And I want to hold them to you, God, and ask that you would comfort them, that you'd love them. And if you don't know what to pray, man, this book is so full of prayers. It's like an incredible instruction manual. Just pick a psalm and just pray that for him. Now, you know, pick the right psalm. You, you might be bringing on some doom for somebody, but, but that's okay. It's the word of God. God might have put that before you for them. They might be in an imprecatory mood. This idea of intercession is important. And it's important because the scripture says... Just as it's important that Jesus recognizes that he's praying for these guys, the scriptures actually put it before us that Jesus is still interceding on our behalf. Have you considered that? That Jesus sitting on the right hand of the throne of God prays for you. Talks to his daddy about your life. See, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit moans on your behalf words that you don't even understand. 
So if you're going through hardships, you don't know anyone understands or gets what you're walking through, know that you got the Holy Spirit who's communicating to the Father on your behalf. The scripture says that Jesus, sitting next to the Father, also pleads on your behalf. He puts forth your case. Romans 8.34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. Now here's the part. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, that's not just Paul. Jesus didn't just pray for Paul and go, yep, Paul finished his work, we're done. Jesus doesn't just intercede on behalf of the important people. He intercedes on behalf of all of us. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he is, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus intercedes on your behalf. Jesus knows where you're at. He knows what you're walking through. And he's putting it before the Father. If you don't have the words to pray, he does. Trust him in that. Jesus continues praying out loud before these guys. Acknowledging again that he's about to leave. In verse 11, he says this. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And we get to Jesus' only prayer request for these guys. He's got one. He prays one thing for himself. Glorify me that I might glorify you. Subject me to anything that much might be made of your name. As he prays for his disciples, he says this. Keep them in your name. By the power of your name, hold them together. Hold these guys together. That's Jesus' prayer for them. That they be bound in unity. See, that's crucial for us to see as just an issue of discipleship is Jesus is wanting to disciple you and hold you together. Note that he doesn't pray that they'll all be safe, that they'll all be healthy, as I joked last week as my main prayer for my children. He doesn't pray that they'll avoid hardship or struggle or pain. He doesn't pray that they'll have an easy path or that it'll all be clear for them. He doesn't pray for the avoidance of anything. He prays that these guys would be unified, that they'd be together. And why is that so important? Because just as Christ is praying for our unification, Satan is desiring to separate us, to divide us, and to disunify us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Be be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Can we just say for a minute, if we're going to talk about the word of God, which we like to hold up here, we like to say this book is true. And if this book is true, this verse that comes from this book is true. Do you get that? Satan is literally a prowling lion 
looking for someone to devour. Satan is desiring to tear us apart one by one. Church, this is where we need ecclesiology. This is where we need the reality that we've got to hold ourselves together. We have to. This is why Paul put before the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name, by the power of his name, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Later says to Colossians, and in a much more instructive, practical application of this, Colossians 3, 13 and 14, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other, as the Lord has given, forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, as a church, we got to appreciate, just as the disciples had an attack against them by Satan, as a church, we do too. That Satan desires to devour us, to pick us apart, just like a, a pack of sheep. If you, you isolate one, he's the easiest one to eat. That's what Satan desires to do for us. This is why as a church, this why, let's leave this Colossians up for a little while. This is why as a church, we've got to hold this passage to be true. I put the wrong Colossians verse up there. Good for me. I cut and paste poorly. I confess sin before you. I think the page number is right. So pull out your Red Pew Bible, go to page 984. It's right in your Pew Bible. My cut and pasting is, is fallen, just like your pastor. We have to bear with one another. We have to love one another. See, the challenge that happens in the modern church is that one of you is going to get mad at me someday. And rather than coming to my face and talking to me about it, you're going to tell somebody sitting next to you. And then both of you are going to get mad at me. And then likely, if it's anything like the pattern in the American church, you're both going to leave. Never wondering if what you said about me was true. Never seeking me. I might be really wrong. I might really need you to show up in my office and rebuke me. That probably needs to happen from time to time. I'm a big fallen sinner. But church, this is why we've got to bear with one another. We've got to love one another. We've got to hold one another. We've got to be willing to go to somebody and say, brother, I think you're in the wrong. And likewise, we've got to be willing that a, a guy's going to show up to us and say, brother, I think you're wrong. We've got to be willing to hear that. Why? Because the unity of the church is huge. It's the testimony we've got to the world that we will hold each other, that we'll sin against each other and still love one another. It's, we want people from the street to come in here and see people go, they shouldn't get along. Why do they get along? Answer, Jesus Christ is huge and he's gracious. And he's been abundant in his grace to me. And so I want to show it to my brother. We can sin against one another and still walk, still worship together, still function as the body. This, this is the unity that as a church we so desperately need. This is the unity that these disciples needed and why Jesus prayed it for them. And in fact, Jesus prays it for you in verse 23. But we'll look at that next week. In verse 12, he continues, While I was with them, 
I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Clearly a reference to Judas, who we talked about probably 10, 12 weeks ago. Jesus says, I have not lost one, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He wants to make it plain and clear to these guys that he's not going to lose another one, that that's not a pattern. He wants to reassure them the same way he wants to reassure you. That Jesus holds you. And unless you're the Antichrist, and I'm kind of laying my money that none of you are, that's, that's, you know, I put my house on it right now. Jesus is going to hold you. And he's not going to lose you. Because you're his. And if you've believed in his name and you've claimed him, you belong to him and you're his. This is, these are reassuring words he's putting before these guys, putting before the Father. And in verse 13 he says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because you are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus literally headed to the cross. He'll finish praying this in about 30 seconds. And then we'll walk out of the upper room, walk out of the city of Jerusalem, walk across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be arrested. And yet he's speaking to them about leaving. And he's speaking to them that they may have joy, that they may have his joy in an overwhelming, filling sense. Now I want you to see that. Because as Jesus is praying for his disciples, realizing that they're wanting them to have this joy, this is not in simple, easy circumstances. This isn't like, hey, we're going to Six Flags. Let's be unified. He's not saying, hey, let's all ride the roller coaster together and have a good time. We all want butter in our popcorn, don't we? Jesus is walking them into hardship and pain and difficulty. These guys are going to be killed for what they believe. And yet Jesus is unifying them together and putting them on a mission together and talking about joy? Really? This joy's got to be rooted in something else, doesn't it? Because it can't be rooted in the human experience. It's got to be something distinctly different. It's got to be a joy, a true joy that's only found in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and what he accomplishes at the cross and what he accomplishes in the resurrection and in finding yourself so full and complete in him that you're held by him, that you belong to him, such that the midst of death, hate, hardship, and persecution, you would have joy. No wonder, as these guys move forward 8, 10, 12 weeks, the same group of guys start getting persecuted, physically beaten by the Romans, and start celebrating. Yeah, high five! We are worthy to get beat for the name of Jesus. See, that puts persecution, pain, and hardship all in perspective. And frankly, into our 21st century American worlds, it ought to put a whole lot more in perspective 
about what we want to find joy in, about what we want to find significance in, about what we want to put our hope in, about where we're going to find our value. Because it's all about Jesus. And it's all about what he did at the cross for us. And nothing else matters. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. See, if it was about joy, pain, if it was about your peace, if it was about your contentment, he wouldn't say that. He'd say, pluck them out. Save them and pluck them. That way they won't experience anything. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep the lion at bay. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And then he summarizes himself by saying this in verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart. He acknowledges they're not of this world. They belong to the Father. Set them apart. We can't miss this. Set them apart. But to set them apart in truth, your word is truth. His word is truth. His word is the thing that sets us apart. In verse 18, he gives them a commissioning in the same way he gives you a commissioning. As you sent me into the world, by the way, highlight this, circle this, underline it. If you're a Bible writer, do it. If you're not a Bible writer, still do it. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. What's Jesus saying in that sentence? For the same purpose that God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world, Jesus is sending you into the world. For the same purpose that God the Father sent his son into the world, he is sending you into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. For their sake, I consecrate myself. Jesus heads to the cross. He consecrates himself. That we might be sanctified. That we might be set apart by his blood. That we could have a right relationship with the Father so that we could be known and we could know he did it not that we'd be called away from the world or for its hatred or for its, how it despises the truth. He didn't call us away from the world so we'd avoid pain or trials or struggles. No, in fact, he called us into the world so we'd endure all of those things to manifest the Father, to show the world the Father, so that we could walk through trials and pain and struggles and show the world the name of Jesus Christ by how we do it. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word that you have given up to us that we might know the words of your son. God, the way you sanctified us through your son is amazing. Thank you that you glorified him. You made much of him by sending him to the cross on our behalf. Father, how it points us to you, that we might know the one and only true God and Jesus Christ, his son. Father, we are so unworthy 
We're so unworthy of Jesus. And yet we're so worthy because you love us. We're so worthy, God, because we're yours and because you've declared it to be true. So, Father, on this day, I pray that everyone in this room would know the name of your son, Jesus, and would believe in it, would receive it, and would walk out its truth. Father, that we would know that we're yours and that you love us and that you're proud of us. That we wouldn't hide from the world, but Father, we'd realize you called us into it. And Father, as we all, all of us deal with hurt and pain and struggle, because that's so much of what this world dishes out to us, we wouldn't flee from it, but we'd lean into you. That the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray for our offering.